Don't pay retail for your diamond engagement ring or gift. Come to CleanOrigin.com. Founded by a leading family in the diamond industry for more than a century, we're experts in lab-grown diamonds because that's all we do. Clean Origin, the only diamond jewelers who give you a 100-day, no-questions-asked return on your purchase. Head to CleanOrigin.com or one of our retail stores and mention code RADIO10 for 10% off your purchase. That's CleanOrigin.com, code RADIO10. While this year's wildfire season in the United States hasn't really picked up steam, the wildfires in Canada have taken over the headlines, not just because of the extent of the fires, but because of the smoke that is being drifted into the United States and causing some of the worst air quality in years. This has been forcing Americans to pay attention to what is happening north of the border and asking questions about these fires in the past, present, and future tense. Today, my guest and I are talking about Canada's wildfires, and we'll be looking at one of the worst in the country's history at Fort McMurray. Let's welcome author John Valiant to Weather Geeks. John, thank you for joining us on the Weather Geeks podcast. Hey, Marshall, I'm so glad to be with you. You know, it's, it's really a very timely topic. I think it's one that many of our listeners and viewers are quite interested in. I don't know that you're a weather geek, but I typically ask each guest out of the gate, how did you become a weather geek? So how'd you become a fire geek, if that's more appropriate? Or perhaps you are a weather geek. Yeah, well, you know, I think I, I think being a fire geek, which I think I qualify as now, since I just spent truly seven years working on this book called Fire Weather, uh, a true story from a hotter world. And which really got me deeply into the weeds, if you want to say, into the smoke of, uh, of wildfire in the 21st century. So uh, it was studying this fire in particular in Fort McMurray, Alberta, um, that uh, burnt over the city in uh, 2016 uh, that really got me focusing on not just that fire, but the way fire is changing across the globe. And, and to the point that I really call the fires that we're experiencing now in Canada and elsewhere, 21st century fire. I think they're really qualitatively different from uh, what firefighters and civilians were dealing with, uh, you know, even in the 1990s. Yeah, I think as, as is the case for almost every weather phenomena, it's a new normal. I think even as we're recording this, we just had tremendous flooding in parts of the Northeast That's U.S., right. New York and, and Vermont. Yeah. I mean, it, it's almost a challenge to talk about these things because these anomalous events are happening with such regularity. Now, let me give us, the listeners a little bit of your background before we launch into the discussion. Uh, John Valiant is an award-winning writer and journalist of both fiction and nonfiction works. His other book titles include The Golden Spruce, The Tiger, A True Story of Vengeance and Survival, and The Jaguar's Children. He's born in Massachusetts, but I believe is now living in Vancouver, Canada. And now you set the stage already with this discussion. I want to kind of go back to the basics. We like to geek out here. Make the connection, yeah, right. John, between climate change and why that would be leading to more extreme fire seasons or fire activity yeah. in places like Canada and the United States. Just give us sort of the 101. For sure. And, and, and this is the power of the Fort McMurray fire. So Alberta, huge province in Western Canada, 
easiest way for Americans to understand it, it's the Texas of Canada. Big oil, uh, horses, cattle, big hats, uh, very strong um, Christian faith there, very strong worth ec- uh, work ethic, uh, quite independent, if you, it's the nicest way I can put it, from the federal government, really likes to do its own thing. Um, and so that allegiance to the petroleum industry has led to it becoming the biggest producer in the country, and Canada is one of the biggest oil producers in the world. So Fort McMurray, which people in Houston have heard of and people in, in Dallas have heard of, but maybe people in Atlanta and elsewhere haven't, um, is the oil capital of Canada. And what they do up there is they mine bitumen, which is actually tar, but it, they render it with huge amounts of natural gas, melting it, melting it, melting it, upgrading it into feedstock for the American petroleum industry. So Is this Alberta, where the tar sands are located? These are the tar sands. These are the infamous tar sands. They're 600 yeah. miles north of the U.S. border, north of Montana, in the yeah. middle of the boreal forest, which is the biggest terrestrial, you know, biome. Uh, it's that huge forest that rings the Northern Hemisphere, the, the Russian taiga is part of the boreal forest, the forests of Scandinavia are part of it, and all of Northern Canada and Alaska are part of the boreal forest. It's a colossal forest system. And in the middle of this is Fort McMurray sitting on this gigantic New York state-sized bitumen deposit. And so as a result of this massive processing that's going on up there using really billions of cubic feet of natural gas every day, uh, Canada has become the United States' largest source of foreign oil. And 90% of that petroleum feedstock comes right out of Fort McMurray. And in May 3rd, 2016, a massive fire came out of the boreal forest and burned right through the city of Fort McMurray. So this is 75,000 permanent residents plus 20, 30,000 um, shadow population, guest workers, visiting workers who are involved in the petroleum industry up there. Everybody serves that industry. So on May 3rd, because of this massive fire that came in, uh, Fort McMurray be, uh, became the, the source and the cause of the largest evacuation due to fire in modern times. So 90,000 people were run out of that city in a single afternoon, really unheard of. And the conditions that created that are absolutely kind of signals of where we're going with fire in the 21st century. So we're up in the boreal. We're 600 miles north of, of the U.S. border. It's cold up there. On May 3rd, lakes were still frozen in the forest. Car-sized blocks of ice were sitting on the Athabasca River, which is the main river flowing through town. Nonetheless, nonetheless, the temperature that day was 91 degrees Fahrenheit. So that is about 25 degrees above the norm for that time of year. The relative humidity was 11%. So Death Valley in July has more humidity than... Fort McMurray had that day. So think about a wildfire. Think about uh, the boreal forest system, which is famous for colossal fires anyway, because this is not exactly weather, but it influences weather. Some of the trees that grow in the boreal are fire dependent, which means their cones, these black spruce cones, will not open unless they're heated to temperatures higher than what sunlight alone can generate. 
So they have to burn. And when the forest burns, it tells the cones, it tells the seeds, okay, it's safe to pop out now. The ground is clear, the canopy is open, and the stage is yours to regenerate. So fire, so you could say the boreal forest system is a phoenix among ecosystem in, in that it needs to burn in order to regenerate. This is healthy, this is normal. But so you take a forest system and then you goose the temperature by 25 degrees, you reduce the, the humidity by 15 to 30%, and then you set it on fire. So think about that. Think about trying to start a campfire. It's a lot easier to start it with matchsticks and kindling a newspaper than it is with damp old forest wood or green tree wood. So now you have a fire, a fire system that's already primed to burn, basically having the equivalent of gasoline sprayed on it in, in, in terms of this elevated heat and this reduced humidity. Then you, the, the other secret ingredient is wind. And that day, a 20-knot wind came out of the uh, southwest and blew that fire and all the embers into the city. Mm -hmm. And so the thing about embers is you can be fighting the fire. You can be a great firefighter, but you can't stop the embers. The embers are like the, the medieval archers shooting flaming arrows over the top of the battlefield into the behind over the castle walls. And that's what happened. And because of the heat, because of the dryness, because of the wind, those embers, some of which were the size of work boots and tree branches, sailed through the air, stayed on fire because it was so hot, so windy, so dry, landed in people's yards where now it's 11% humidity and 90 degrees. And so instead of fizzling out, the grass just burst into flame. Why, and so why, now- as you're, I want to pause you for a moment there because I, I, yeah, I was sure. aware of this and you were aware of this. And I think some people were, but this was really a, almost an apocalyptic like scenario that was happening. I, and I, I feel like maybe many listeners that are hearing this for the first time aren't aware of what happened. Why, why do you think this was not sort of this mega, mega international story in the way we've seen with other sort of climate-related disasters? Yeah. M Marshall, you're absolutely right. And, and it, you know, as I, as I elaborate on what happened that day, it, it, it was truly end-times class apocalyptic energy that was being imposed on the city that day. And I think, I, I mean, I've I grew up in the United States. I now live in Canada. And it's really clear to me that Americans, you got to love them, but they, they have a bit of a block when it comes to Canada. And it's hard for their attention span to reach across the border and stay there. So Unless the there's smoke is coming into the U.S. Man. Yeah, now it's coming in and say, hey, you know, Canada is big. It's up there. And it's now it's on fire. Literally, as you and I speak, Marshall, the records are being just blown away in terms of the 20 million acres of Canada have burned just in the past six weeks. So that's that's a country the size of Portugal. The equivalent forest has burnt already. And we're, we've got three months of fire season to go. Well, I was listening to a radio show that I enjoy and the, the, the guys are on the show and they were talking, well, why can't we just go put out fires when, you know, it was the time when the smoke was coming in the parts yeah. of Chicago and D.C.? I just, as you noted, John, I don't think, and by the way, we're talking with John Valiant, uh, award-winning writer and journalist here on Weather Geeks. I don't think people appreciate the sheer scale of how much is on fire in Canada. 
And I, I don't think they do. And and th again, this is, you know, what makes the Fort McMurray files fire such a beautiful example. You know, it started out as a little tiny spot fire on May 1st. It multiplied, it increased in size by 500 times within 24 hours. Within 48 hours, it was burning through the city of Fort McMurray. And we let's talk for just for a moment about the energy being exerted by these fires. So again, we've got reduced humidity, elevated temperature, a forest that is already primed to burn. So these flames are between 150 and 300 feet high, and they are projecting radiant heat of 900 to 1,000 degrees. Wow. And radiant heat, I learned, moves at the speed of light. So it's projecting this unbelievable withering energy in front of it as it moves forward, pulled, really drawn by the wind. It's not pushed by the wind, it's drawn by the wind. And so the, and the fire is, you know, looking for more oxygen, looking for more fuel. And so it's racing ahead. It's, you know, think of a bloodhound chasing a hot scent. That's how fire moves across a landscape. So imagine these black spruce trees already primed to burn, projecting thousand degree heat, hitting a modern suburban neighborhood. That everything in that neighborhood is instantly dried out and is instantly well over combustion temperature. So as when the first spark hits it, it doesn't just sort of creep into flame, it explodes into flame. That's your truck, that's your garbage can, that's your picket fence, that's all the nice cedar mulch that you planted uh, in your flower bed, turns into a fuse, races up to your house. Well, your house has vinyl siding, it's got tar shingles, it's got vinyl windows, it's got all kinds of uh, glues and laminates and petroleum products uh, as sealants and in the, in your mattress stuffing, in your sofa stuffing. And so all of that is uh, what what fire likes to do is it doesn't burn solid objects. It heats things up so that they volatize. It, it releases the flammable gases. So imagine thousand degree heat hitting a house that's mostly petroleum products, which I'm sorry to say is what most modern houses are made of. Once you get past the wood framing and the gypsum sheetrock, there's a whole lot of petroleum and chemicals in there that really want to burn. And so when you heat them up, they're volatizing like crazy. So imagine this cloud of flammable gas around every house. The fire hits it at a thousand degrees. And these houses, Marshall, these are half million dollar two-story homes, state-of-the-art. They got their Alexas, they got their modems, they got their everything, burning to the basement in five minutes. Un unbelievable. When, and when I, we, I couldn't believe it. Like firefighters, I couldn't believe it. Well, when we, when we come back from the break, John, I want to talk to you more about firefighters and the fire weather and weather forecasting associated with supporting what they do. We'll, we'll talk about that after this first break. Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. 
That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crow portrays an ex-homicide detective, unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. And we are back on the Weather Geeks podcast. I'm Dr. Marshall Shepard from the University of Georgia, and I'm speaking with award-winning writer and journal- journalist John Valiant about fire weather, a true story from a hotter world. That's John's new book. It's a fascinating read. Uh, I encourage you to take a look at it, particularly in light of what we're talking about here. And I, I do want to kind of geek out a little bit more on something you mentioned before I ask John the next question, because he mentioned something about radiant heat or radiant energy traveling at the speed of light. And that yeah. is indeed the case. Weather Geeks listeners and viewers, go and Google or look up the electromagnetic spectrum. Uh, that is the spectrum of all energy from ultraviolet to visible light to heat, infrared to microwave. And those things are governed by, in terms of their their speed, the speed of light, frequency, and wavelength. So I invite you to dig deeper with that little geek out that John seeded us with. Now, weather forecasting plays a crucial role in managing and mitigating fires. Um, my producers had a really interesting question here. I'm going to read it verbatim. Could you shed some light on the meteorological tools and models used by firefighters and emergency responders when we're dealing with fire behavior? Sure. Um, so there's, I've got to say, uh, you know, we, we should all tip our hats both to climate scientists and to meteorologists because they are really, really good at what they do. And so well, thank um, you. Noah, the... Um, yeah. Oh, yeah, absolutely. No. Um, uh, you know, I owe, you know, why why my book is any good is because of, you know, what meteorologists taught me and, and fire scientists uh, shared with me. You know, they're also just incredibly generous, helpful people, by the way. Uh, so NOAA, the um, National um, uh, is the Oceanic Association. What do you yeah. call it? Yeah. The Oceanic Administration. Yeah. Thank you very much. Uh, so they uh, issue a fire outlook for North America every year. And so they are predicting the likelihood of, of fire across the, across the continent. And in 2016, they made a you know, pretty dire prediction for Alberta, Canada. It was all red, which indicates elevated uh, possibility of fire. So we already knew uh, that there was drought, in fact, present in Alberta and across a lot of Western Canada because there was an El Nino already that had kicked in in 2015. It was a really strong one. It lasted into 2016. Snowpack was really reduced. Um, rainfall was really reduced. So already uh, Alberta and Western Canada in general were, were tinder dry. So 
we knew that everybody knew that going into fire season that year, just, and it's, which is very, a season very similar to this year in terms of the dryness and fire intensity. So we really had a, a preview of, of this year's fire season in 2016. And so then uh, as we get, you know, a week or two out, the, the weather, uh, uh, the meteorologists kick in with more local weather and they called it exactly. And so on top of that, um, fire scientists have a whole index called the fire weather index, which is you know why I called the book fire weather. The fire weather index is an aggregate of different indicators, including temperature, of course, um, relative humidity, but then also um, these different moisture codes for what's called duff and surface litter on the forest. So this would be leaves, pine needles, stuff lying around. Then they go deeper into the soil and check the humidity there. They also look at the uh, humidity of, uh, and moisture content of actual trees and, and, and dead wood on the ground. And they aggregate all that into a fire weather index. So uh, in Canada, uh, I don't know if it's exactly the same in, in the U.S., but 33 on the fire weather index is considered extreme. The fire weather index for May 3rd, 2016, was about 38. So we're already beyond the red zone into a very frightening place. And everybody knew this. Everybody was told this. But there was, um, and even though that fire, and, and they also had the prediction for the wind change. So the meteorologists did a perfect job, I have to say. There were no surprises there. And what's surprising is the way human beings, authorities in charge of keeping the city safe, interpreted the information. And this, in a way, is a metaphor for how our species and our uh culture is in, in responding to climate change. We have superb information, which in fact, like literally since the 1950s and 60s, we've had accurate predictions for when industrial CO2 from burning fossil fuels, the impacts of that would start to intrude on normal weather fluctuation and become uh, obvious to us. And that was late 90s, around 2000. Exxon's own scientists predicted this in the 1970s. It's very well documented. Uh, Exxon is really good at what they do. And one of the things they're good at is climate science, ironically. Uh, and, yeah. then, you know, they made some decisions about how they wanted to, uh, you know, share that science or or bury it. But in the in the 60s and 70s, some pioneering work was done by petroleum Companies. So we have this great uh, information about CO2 and the role that it plays. And then we have meteorologists and fire scientists uh, uh, building on that layer of, of excellent uh, information. And then you get down to the days right before, you know, May 1st, May 2nd, May 3rd, 2016, when you're really getting a blow by blow prediction of this is what the fire is going to do. And then you have people who need to respond to that in some way. But how do you respond when you've got 90,000 people living there and a multi-billion dollar petroleum industry that works 24-7, 365? You don't want to shut that down. Yeah. I, so you know, get people on the southern perimeter, try to fight it. Yeah, no, I, I it's a really important point. And John, I want to really I can clearly tell you're good at what you do because you have just a 
crystal clear understanding of the sort of the the line between meteorology and climatology and how they work together. It often is something that confuses many people that listen and are in the public, but your sort of mastery of how the weather and climate are connected is, is adamant, uh, is admirable, I should say. Now, your book, Fire Weather, explores connections between climate, climate change, fire weather. Uh, what are some of the key points that you would leave our listeners and viewers with in terms of what you learned in your, your research and pulling the book together? So it has been understood since the 1850s that CO2, carbon dioxide, has the power to influence our climate. It has been speculated since the 1890s that industrial CO2, CO2 from fossil fuel burning, from coal, from petroleum, could actually influence the climate. That was proven uh, by scientists with more sophisticated in, uh, information uh, and tools, uh, radium spectrometers, I forget what they're called, uh, in, starting in the 1950s, they were starting to measure elevated levers, levels of CO2. That was even, you know, uh, Climate scientists actually spoke on Capitol Hill to this effect in the 1950s. So this has been known for a long time. And what we're seeing now is all these predictions come to come uh, to uh, come true, if you say. Basically, the chickens coming home to roost. So we are still burning fossil fuels at a ferocious rate. And that is changing the climate measurably. And what the, the, I mean, climate science isn't rocket science with all due respect. When you raise the temperature of the earth's surface, you are gonna have more evaporation. And you know, just hang your laundry out on the line on a hot, dry, sunny day, it's gonna dry faster, so is a forest. And when you raise it uh, above normal temperatures, and that's what we're seeing all over the globe right now, heat records getting shattered right and left, it's happening right now in Canada, you're going to have increased evaporation. And so even historically flammable environments like the boreal forest are going to become ultra flammable, explosively flammable. And they're going to start doing things that we've never seen before. And they are going to generate fires that human beings simply don't have the power to combat. So all you can do is evacuate. And that's pretty much what happened in Fort McMurray. Yeah, exactly. Now, you mentioned something, and I, you know, obviously climate change is happening. Our human footprint. In fact, I want to mention, as we're recording this just this week, it was announced that geologists have determined that we are now in the Anthropocene, this sort of epic that started in the 1950s where human footprint and, and fingerprint is essentially controlling the epic that we're living. Now, so this, the context for that is I often in my Twitter world or in my social media world will have people say, well, of course, climate changes. It climate changes naturally. We have variability and we have things like El Nino. Of course, we understand that. Uh, it's not an either or proposition, as I often say. It's an and proposition. It's both. Yeah. So you yeah. mentioned El Nino. I think you said that 2016 was an El Nino year. I think it's also the hottest year on record from a climate standpoint. We're in the midst of an El Nino here in 2023, and we're also yeah. seeing an explosive climate change through the anthropogenic processes. Uh, and we're seeing elevated wildfire activity in Canada. Surprise, surprise. So talk to our listeners about the sort of coupling between sort of things like the El Nino variability and how that is sort of amplified, if you will, by the 
broader climate change. Sure. So there's, uh, you know, I think, you know, skeptics or people who say, you know, weather is variable by nature, all of that is absolutely true. And there, and there are, you know, climate is a complex system. There, there are a bunch of different factors. You know, one of the reasons fires are burning so intensely in northern Canada is fire suppression. You know, we put out so many fires successfully that there's this extra buildup of fuel and then there's also a lot of beetle infestations, which have created a lot of deadwood. So you have a lot of standing firewood that's now super hot. So on top of that, though, really the best analogy I heard, Marshall, for trying to explain how climate change, human-induced CO2 and methane-induced climate change um, impact the already variable climate is think of a, a really uh, powerful baseball slugger. Like, you know, and we know this guy can knock it out of the park and, he, you know, he can do it every three or four games. He sends one up into the stands. Well, you shoot that guy full of steroids and now you put him up to bat again. And now he's sending a ball into the stands every game and he's sending one into the parking lot every fifth game. That is what CO2 and methane have done to our climate. They've turned a, a heavy duty slugger into a anomalous record breaker. And that's what we've got going on right now is we have this uh, unbelievable heavy hitter who's now knocking them right out of the park on a regular basis. And we're seeing that almost daily and weekly now. If you look at the water temperatures in Florida, or if you look at the heat waves in South Asia, I mean, all over the place, we're seeing, you know, this record breaking slugger, he, you know, he's not just hitting homers, he's hitting, you know, there, you're never going to see that ball again. And uh, that's kind of where that's where we're at. When we, when we come back, I'm going to ask John the big question. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. 
Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. And we are back on the Weather Geeks podcast. I'm Dr. Marshall Shepard from the University of Georgia. I'm speaking with John Valiant, the author of Fire Weather, a true story from a hotter world. And yeah, it's hotter right now. Just this week, we've had broke for four days in a row, unofficially, the the, the average hottest day globally on, on the planet. So uh, as we're dealing with that heat, we've got wildfires. United States here in the northeast part of the country has seen ridiculous flooding. So it's not just one little sort of call in the wilderness. We're getting sirens blaring at us of this changing or shifting climate. But the big question that I referred to is essentially we see what's going on. We know what's happening. So the question is probably two part. What do we do? So that what do we do really is from the bigger picture climate perspective, but also from the local fire management perspective. So what are your thoughts? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, One, you know, we have to shift away from fossil fuels as rapidly as possible. You know, we really need to almost be on a war footing globally uh, to reduce our our carbon footprint uh, at the industrial level, not at the personal level. I'm not just talking about taking the bus. I'm talking about really moving away from this unbelievable uh, burning that we're currently engaged in. You know, one way to understand the the energy industry as it is now, the petroleum industry, it's truly a fire industry. I mean, that's why we're interested in gas and oil and bitumen and coal is because it burns. And when you burn for 150 years at the level we've done, you're going to see changes. And we're seeing those changes right now. So that's kind of the the short-term and the long-term project. Uh, When it comes to firefighting though, um, we uh, some really interesting things are happening, and, and the insurance industry may decide this for us. Uh, State Farm and a couple of other insurance companies have just said we are not going to uh, issue ins- fire insurance for new builds in the state of California. That's 40 million people now who are going to not be able to get fire insurance. And so people are going to have to think about where they build, what they build, what they build out of, referring back to how's the modern house being really petroleum heavy and actually super flammable. Uh, So we're going to have to think about all that. And the other thing we have to think about is this notion of the WUI, the wildlife urban interface. And this is where Half of Americans and, uh, and or no, half of Canadians and a third of Americans make their homes, and which is a really beautiful place. It's that place where you've got running trails out your back door and a cul-de-sac that you're where you can play basketball or play with your scooter out the front door. But the back door is where the fire comes in. That's where the wildland fire can come into your community and burn your house down in five minutes. And that's a really scary prospect. And so we have to think about the forest in a different way. We have to think about it, frankly, the way people thought about it in the 19th century, when people's houses burnt down a lot and they realized we better clear fields all around our villages so that we can plant and put our animals out to pasture. But that also makes one heck of a good fire break. So when the forest does catch on fire, we have acres and acres of pasture between us and that out-of-control wildfire. So we forgot that. And in the 1950s, with the development of suburbia, we kind of redesigned our way of being in the forest, which is now super flammable. And so we're going to have to rethink that. 
And then in yeah, terms I, of actual firefighting, um, yes, keep what going. I yes, found when I, interviewed, uh, when I spoke to these folks, they said, well, the firefighting effort turned into a life-saving effort because these fires were so intense, the firefighters could not combat them with the equipment they had. There's nothing you can do against 100-foot flames and 1,000-degree and radiant heat. All you can do as a firefighter is get civilians out of there as quickly and safely as possible. So the dynamic has really ch- We've really unleashed titanic energies. And petroleum has made us superhuman and incredibly powerful. But we've, in so doing, by burning all those fossil fuels and generating all that CO2, we have in turn empowered fire. And so it's a kind of a give and take. And, and we have to reckon with that, what we've created now. You're, you're an award-winning uh, journalist, author. I can't let you get out of here without giving us some inside tips on, from your perspective on communicating all of this. I mean, I, I, you, you've done a masterful job here in the podcast today, and I certainly encourage everyone to go out and uh, get fire. By the way, where can people find fire weather? You know, it's it's doing pretty well right now. So you can get it in any bookstore. Um, you can, you know, it can be through any online outlet you want to get. It's on audio. There's a, actually a really good guy, uh, very good reader, read it on the audio. It's in really every format uh, that you like to partake of. So um, are, you, I really are, you in, are you in social media? Are you can some people follow you on Twitter? Or yeah, Facebook? I'm I'm John Valiant. Uh, I'm on Twitter at John Valiant. And you spell my last name Vias and Victor A-I-L-L-A-N-T. It looks like John Valent, but uh, I'm stubborn. Uh, so if uh, but yeah, uh, on Twitter is my main medium. I'm on there a lot. Um, it's a it's a really a fantastic community. I found people criticize it a lot. Uh, but it's been really helpful for me. And frankly, it really helped me write my book because of, again, of the generosity of meteorologists and climate scientists. Yeah, I, I, I agree. I'm on there as well. I have recently moved over to Threads. And by the way, Weather Geeks yeah. listeners, we're on Weather Geeks is now on Twitter, Threads and Instagram. So if you're not following us on those yeah. platforms, but I want to get back to my question. Are there any tricks or tips that you have in terms of conveying the seriousness of climate change or fire related weather hazards? Yeah, I'm. What I try to do is personalize it. I'm. I'm just kind of a. I'm not a scientist, and and I'm. I'm a regular person, and so I don't understand science until it relates to me. And so, like when we talk about, say, uh, trying to keep the temperature below 1.5, well, what are you talking about? You know, it was 70 degrees this morning, and it was 90 degrees this afternoon. You know, it's all the temperatures all over the place. You know, what do you mean? And so I think about it as, well, what about your own body? If you increase the temperature of your own body by 1.5, you're going to have a fever. If you, if you increase it by 2 degrees Celsius, you're going to be in bed. And if you increase it by 4 degrees Celsius, which is happening right now in the Arctic, you're going to be in the hospital and maybe in the morgue. Like That's how sensitive we are. And our environment is equally sensitive. Our oceans are equally sensitive. We're all alive uh, and living creatures attuned to particular temperatures. And so when you start messing with that and tweaking with that, you're going to feel it. And so we can go out into 90 degree temperatures, but if our actual body core temperature starts to rise too, we're going to be sick and we could potentially die. And so that's how I think about it in terms of 
why the it's so important that we maintain a stable climate te- uh, average temperature because if we tweak it too much we're going to move into lethal territory and we are frankly seeing that now water temperatures around florida air temperatures in south asia fire energy being released you know if you look at these graphs of of the actual terawatts of of fire energy coming out of Canada right now, they're, they're like these vertical spikes that no one has really ever seen. So we're in, we're in a very intense place right now, and it's very, very serious. And I'm working as hard as I can to convey it, and I, and I know you are too, uh, Dr. Shepard. Yeah, it's really amazing communication perspective that you have on the topic. Uh, I really appreciate you joining us. We're out of time. Thank you for bearing with us. We, we've uh, had a couple of uh, snafus in getting John and myself together, but we, I'm glad we finally were able to make it work because it's such an amazing discussion. Be sure to check out John's book, Fire Weather, and also the rest of his catalog out there. It looks like some very interesting topics as well. John, thank you for joining us on the Weather Geeks podcast. Dr. Shepard, this is one of the most pleasurable interviews I've had. So thank you so much. Thank Great you so much. You. And- Nice to meet you as well. And thank you all for continuing to listen to us. You can find us where you find your favorite podcast. And you can now find us by video on the Weather Channel streaming. I'm Dr. Marshall Shepard. See you next time on Weather Geeks. Weather Geeks.